Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk with Danny Nuremberg's executive producer, Rob Perra. At a recent Food Tank event, Lucy Biggers of Now This talks with Dr. Mark Hyman, head of strategy and innovation for Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine. Live on stage, they pinpoint food as the cause of the chronic disease affecting 60% of Americans, widespread biodiversity loss, and nearly 50% of climate change. But they note that food is also the solution to these health and environmental issues. Enjoy the show. I'm so excited for this conversation. Um, Welcome to the conversation with Dr. Mark Hyman. Um, I'm Lucy Biggers. I am a correspondent host for Now This News, which is a millennial-focused digital news outlet. We reach 70% of 20-somethings every month. Mm. And I host a series for them called One Small Step, which is all about the steps that we can take to live more sustainably. But enough about me. This is really about you. Um, I'm sure Dr. Hyman needs no introduction, but I'm going to give one, a good one. He is a physician and a 12-time New York Times bestselling author. He is the founder and director of the Ultra Wellness Center, the head of strategy and innovation at the Cleveland Clinic's Center for Functional Medicine, board president for clinical affairs for the Institute for Functional Medicine, and the host of the popular health podcast, The Doctor's Pharmacy, with Mark Hyman, which I do listen to. So it's a great podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So I think we should just start off with talking about the issues facing our food system. We know it's broken, but I would love to just sort of lay it out so we're all kind of coming from the same place. For sure. You know, I got into this because uh, I'm a functional medicine doctor treating patients with chronic illness and realized that I couldn't solve the problem in my office, that there was this constant flow. Six out of 10 Americans are overweight. 75% of us, sorry, six out of 10 Americans have a chronic disease, mm-hmm. four out of 10 have multiple, and 75% of us are overweight. So I'm thinking, well, how do, how do I start to think about this? Well, if food is causing most of the problems, then what's the cause of the food? And well, it's the food system. Well, what's the cause of the food system? It's our food policy. So I began to think about all this many years ago and started to really look into this and realize that food is a nexus where everything comes together. It's both the cause and the cure for most of what's wrong with the world today, including the overwhelming burden of chronic disease, which is spreading across the globe and not only the United States, the two plus billion people who are overweight or obese, the economic burden of that. Uh, in this country, just alone, it's about $3.7 trillion a year for diabetes and obesity alone. Uh, over the next 35 years, we're gonna spend $95 trillion to deal with chronic illness. That's about 75% of our entire federal budget. Medicaid's gonna run out of the trust, trust fund money by 2026. We're, we're in deep doo-doo financially, and it's mm-hmm. globally a threat to economic development. We're seeing, obviously, the environmental issues. 90% of our plant species have disappeared, lock, lock, loss of biodiversity, 75% of our pollinator species, half of all livestock species. Uh, there's been massive consolidation in the food industry of seed, ag chem, um, and agriculture companies and food companies. Yeah. And we're seeing also the effects of climate change end to end. And people debate these numbers, but end to end, our entire food system is 50% of climate change yeah. from deforestation to land degradation to food waste to processing, packaging, refrigeration, all of that. And then on top of that, food is directly related to poverty, social injustice, as you heard yesterday from Leah Penniman, and also mental illness yeah. and academic achievement challenges where these kids can't learn focus, which is why we're, I think, 31st in the world after Vietnam. And lastly, uh, national security is a threat because 70% of our military recruits are not fit for service. So we're facing threats yeah. across many sectors of society. They're all siloed. And yet food is the link that connects right. all these things. 
And it's also the solution. Right. And you have a book coming out in 2020, Food Fix. So are you face, Are you going to talk about some of those solutions? And do those solutions exist? Yes. I mean, the good news is, yeah, the book is called Food Fix, How to Save Our Health, Our Economy, Our Communities, and Our Planet One Body at a Time. And yes, it lays out the problems, but it also highlights the solutions. And you right. could see from the last panel, companies like General Mills and Danone are innovating in ways that actually are good for them financially because they're going to run out of their supply chain if land's degraded and we have no soil left yeah. in 60 years and we run out of you know fresh water to irrigate. And There's just so many issues that we're yeah. facing. Do you think it would, it would help us if we really went back to the local food system where we're getting our food as locally as possible? I think that that would help for sure, yeah. but it's, it's, much, it's much bigger than that. We need, we need to really think about, uh, you know, functional medicine is about treating the system. It's about right. the science of creating health. Uh, and it's, you know, we use medication when necessary, but it really, food is the biggest driver of health and of course, lifestyle. In, in agriculture right now, we have very similar system to our current medical system, which basically uses inputs like medications to manage things. But mm-hmm. in agriculture, we're, we're depleting our soil, we're destroying biodiversity, we're depleting our water, and it's because of our methods of agriculture that are literally going to put it out of business. So do you, and, do you think the Green Revolution is, is over? It never really I, was? I think the Green Revolution was an attempt to deal with calorie deprivation, to deal with feeding the world. And it was, it was well-intentioned, and it helped in many ways. Right. But it produced... Lots of calories, but not that many nutrients. And, and it's also usurped local systems of agriculture around the world that have undermined uh, local agriculture systems. And often in some of these countries like India and other places where these mm-hmm. have really been quite successful, the suicide rates among farmers are among the highest anywhere. Yeah. I mean, it's very overwhelming to think yeah. about it. And so are you thinking about stuff like regenerative ag as a solution to this? Yeah, I think it's interesting. It's one of the few things that, that solves so many problems. It right. produces food that's better for the land and the environment, the climate, and for humans. And also it's financially more rewarding. Yesterday I was speaking to Gabe Brown, which um, the lady from General Mills was talking about, who's a North Dakota farmer whose farm was destroyed uh, through hail and various uh, you know, weather crises and decided to do regenerative ag. And now he's put 29 inches of soil on top of his land, which usually by quote, natural process it takes a thousand years to generate three inches of soil, but with using integrated farm systems, right. he has cows, pigs, sheep, uh, beef, he has uh, all kinds of produce, vegetables, and he said he, he literally uses almost no inputs, uh, builds soil, does all the things where he's, he's restoring the land, and also he said he makes 20 times as much money as his neighbors yeah. <laughs> who are farming that's, traditionally. So that's wild. I think you know, it's, it's good economically, it's good for the climate, it's good for food, it's good all across, the, all across the sectors. And I think it's one of those areas where there is starting to be investment, there's mm-hmm. starting to be innovations, you know, in food policy that are happening in Washington. I mean, it's in, it's in the appropriations bill uh, right now, but if it's not getting through the Senate, it passed the House. So people are starting right. to think about this. It's so interesting because I think right now the mainstream food debate we're having is like, should we eat meat? Should we not eat meat? Yeah. Uh, and it, it's kind of frustrating because it's like, that seems like kind of a pointless debate. I don't know, a frustrating debate when there's so many other issues like you just laid out. So what's well, your opinion it's, on it's, that debate? It's, it's an important conversation. I think it's very nuanced and it becomes oversimplified, overpolarized, right. meat, no meat. I think it's not the cow, it's the how, it mm-hmm. turns out. And what I mean by that is that, is that if, you look at, uh, <laughs> if you look at factory farming, it's bad for the animals, it's bad for you, it's bad for the planet. Right. It should be banned, period. Uh, however, regenerative ag which includes not just um, you know, animals, but also lots of plants, 
is a method by which we can literally reverse all those problems. Right. There, is, there is no way to rebuild soil at scale, and this is according to the UN and other experts, uh, without the use of integrated animals into the system. Now, whether you decide to eat them or not is something else, but in terms of ecosystem restoration, the pooping, the peeing... Yeah, the fertil- the they're natural fertilizer. I mean, we built up to 50 feet of topsoil in America in some areas through the use of bison that were right. naturally roaming in, in special formations that was moving around quickly. We call it adaptive multi-paddock grazing, but essentially it's a farming technique that's not overgrazing, it's not destroying the land, it's actually building soil, and that's how we got that. And by thinking about it in that way, I think we have the potential to really reverse a lot of these issues. So, so I, I, yeah. let me just say one more thing. Yeah. So, you know, everybody's sort of moving to these plant-based solutions and, and things, and I'm all for plant foods, but I'm for whole plant foods, not industrially processed foods. And I think okay. there's a lot of these meat replacement products, which are well-intentioned, but when you start to look, dig in a little bit more, they're, they're you know, often highly processed foods, uh, you know, impossible burgers made from GMO soy, uh, which puts 11 times more glyphosate in it than, for example, the Beyond Burger. Uh, you know, yes, it's better than factory farming, but uh, an independent life cycle analysis looked at both Impossible Burger and a regenerally raised burger, and they found that, you know, while the Impossible Burger, you know, was far better than a, a feedlot burger, it still added three and a half kilos of carbon per burger, whereas the regenerally raised burger, even accounting for all the methane, all that stuff, drew down three and a half kilos right. of carbon. So you'd have to eat one regenerally raised beef burger to offset the carbon emissions of an Impossible Burger. Wow. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you that it's sort of like thinking like saying we can't eat any cows, like we can't eat any clo- eat, wear any clothes because it's like a fast fashion outfit versus well, something. Cotton, like, right? Cotton right. is pretty destructive. Lots of pesticides. Everybody's right. wearing cotton. <laughs> you just, we just have to think more deeply into the systems, like yeah. how things are made, which I don't think that we've kind of been trained as consumers to do that. Even mm-hmm. I work in sustainability every day and I'm still starting to make those connections about is this fair trade? Where did this come from? And so how do you think that we can get more people to care and really change the systems? Is it education, policy, awareness, all three? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I was sort of struck by Sam Cass's comment yesterday for those who were here, basically said, you know, we don't have a food movement. I think people can argue that. And, and I think what he really meant was we don't have a massive, well-funded, organized lobbying right. and policy making engine that coordinates all the efforts of all the people in this room and around the country and the world that are focused on these issues. Because a lot of these solutions are out there, a lot of them are happening, but there's there's not a lot of coordination. And so one of the things I'm most excited about is an initiative I'm working on that uh, is with a guy who started Bono's One campaign to, mm-hmm. to start to bring together a coalition to fund it well and to create the yeah. grassroots movement, the right messaging and the right policy strategy to drive, to drive things forward. Is there any uh, example of success that you would want to see you know, copied here in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, all around the world, there are successes. Europe's, yeah. you know, Europe's, you know, for, for example, France has sort of outlawed food waste. And they, yeah. Yeah, you're going to go to jail to get a fine unless you right. deal properly with it. Uh, place like Costa Rica, for example, they're paying for ecosystem services. So what ecosystem services are essentially is all the, the uh, natural resources that we use from the earth to benefit us economically. And the cost of those uh, the value of those resources every year is about $124 trillion, which is more than the economy of the entire world. Uh, and, and we just keep, you know, borrowing the soil, borrowing the water, right. killing the biodiversity. And, and there are ways to incentivize things to pay for the true value being created with ecosystem services. There's a, uh, a new, uh, like, venture capital firm called Farmland LLC that is finding these, uh, you know, degraded lands, restoring them, getting ecosystem services. Yeah. Costa Rica, they pay the farmers for putting carbon in the soil. Wow. They pay them for soil that holds water. They pay them for increasing biodiversity. That 
That's the kind of innovation that will make a difference. I mean, uh, Time Magazine just did an article last week uh, on a report from the UN that said if we paid $300 billion toward regenerative ag, it would basically give us 20 more years of runway to solve climate change because it would slow down the emission so much by sequestering the carbon. And that's the amount of money that the military spending is around the world in 60 days or the annual economy of Chile or you know, one, less than one-tenth of the money we spend in this country on diabetes and chronic disease. Uh, and Sorry, just diabetes and obesity. Right. And that should be on every major news network. Yeah. It's not even really making a blip in the, in the news cycle, which is pretty crazy. I'm going to open up for questions in just a second, but um, I host a series, like I said, that's one small step, empowering people to take that one step. So I'm curious, when it comes to transforming our food system, what's the one small step that people in the audience could leave with today? Well, I, I think, you know, our choices matter. So when you see companies like General Mills and Danone shifting what they're doing, right. it's because consumers or people are acting with their wallets and voting with their wallets about what they're purchasing. Right. And if we all want to purchase towards regenerative ag products, if we all want to purchase things that are, are whole foods, that's going to shift things. I think doing things at home like composting, the gardens, community gardens, those are all great things. And I think being, you know, activists, uh, you know, Tom Colecchio talked about the Food Policy Action Network, where you can go and see the voting record of your congressman or senator and, and, and how they vote on food and ag issues. And they, they were effective using that platform to get mm-hmm. two congressmen out of office who are in the deep pockets of the food industry by using a social media campaign. So we, we have more power than we yeah. think. And I, and I think we don't think we do, and we don't think we can leverage it. But I, I think we do. Look at uh, Greta, who, who stood up on stage of the UN and, you know, captivated a world. I mean, we all have that power. Uh, I, I'm sure you've heard the quote from Margaret Mead. says, never doubt the uh, ability of a small group of um, committed individuals to change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. So I think all of you in this room and all of you listening and watching, yeah. I mean, it, it really is up to us. No one's coming to save us. Superman's not coming. That's we have true. to save ourselves. I totally agree. And I think now we're, we're lucky that we have the information. We're all connected. And I think there is a lot of momentum happening right now. And so it will be interesting to see how it even continues to grow in the next few years. Yeah. It really is, it's it's a very time. good moment. I think, you know, I think this, so this conference has really inspired me to sort of see all the work people are doing, all the efforts that are being made right. at a local level, state, federal, the business innovations, the amount of money flooding into this from a business tech food and Food and ag tech uh, is, is just tremendous. So I think, you know, there, there's a lot of hope. And yeah. I think, uh, you know, Congress doesn't usually solve the problems, right? They don't start in Congress. So civil rights, abolition, women's rights, gay marriage, none of that started in Congress. It all ended in Congress. Mm. It starts with, you know, all of us making those choices and, and being active and voices in, in our homes and our communities and our schools and our workplaces and our faith place, uh, places of worship, all those places are where, where the solutions are. I couldn't agree more. And I think that we have a very amazing, passionate audience that cares about this topic. So if you all have any questions, raise your hands. Hi, Alexander Gillette with How Good. The power of the regenerative movement is, uh, you know, has the ability to really change the food landscape. I wonder how we prevent it from becoming greenwashed and what you see a as a process towards making sure the standards meet what the intention is for that word. Yeah, that's a good I, question. I think that's a great question. I mean, how do you ensure that regenerative ag doesn't get co-opted by big food and big ag, right? I think, I think the answer is that if there has to be transparency, there has to be accountability, there has to be legislation and regulation that, that you know, yeah. confirms this. And I think, you know, this field's still evolving. I mean, how do you measure regeneration in an ecosystem 
anywhere, right? Because there's hundreds of different ecosystems across the world. There's different land. There's different climates. There's different soils. So how do you begin to sort of measure and value and, and, and create a, uh, a platform of, 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 you know, using technology to help sort through and make these decisions? And I think that, that tech and that, that evolution of science is happening. So I think, in, I think mandating that is not just sort of like, oh, anybody can say whatever yeah. and, and kind of greenwash it. But I think, I think, I think there, there needs to be some real uh, standards around that. Making a real standard, like almost having like we have an organic, but we could have a, re- I think there, there's going to be one, a regenerative organic yeah. coming. There is, there um, is, there yeah. is. Yeah, there is. I mean, you know, and there are, there are programs like good yeah. purchasing program. I mean, the fact that uh, New York City is the second largest purchaser of food in the country was sort of stunning to me. But, you know, there is a program called the Good Food Purchasing Program that incorporates principles of food that's good for you, good for the planet, good for the animals, mm-hmm. and so on. So I think there's, and good for the farm workers, <laughs> which is a whole other issue. So yeah. I, that, if, if we can, you know, put those criteria in place, if they can be enforced, uh, and, you know, the government purchases huge amounts of food. And so we have a national ability to do that. Yeah. And I think the systems that we have in place now are really propping up, you know, the crash cops that aren't good for us. So if we can prop those up, why can't we shift that money and that interest to something that actually is good for us? Yeah, I mean, all the, all the, a lot of that was done through good intentions. And yeah. I think, you know, we're sort of waking up and going, oops, we kind of <laughs> solved one problem, but created a big mess on the other side. And so now we have to sort of Unravel backpedal that. and, yeah. and I, but I, it's like, to me, it's really inspiring. I mean, to hear companies like Nestle and Danone and General Mills and Unilever at least talking the talk. And I think, you know, from my understanding, they're actually are making progress. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I think they're responding to what ultimately is their financial interest, right? <laughs> Whatever it takes. I'm not, I'm not against that. That's great. If it creates outcomes, do we have more questions in the audience? I'm Lisa Sun. Um, I'm, I must applaud Dr. Hyman. As a patient, consumer, and a personal health advocate, I have a simple question. Much of the medicine that we practice in the Western Hemisphere right now seem to avoid something that I personally think perhaps could be improved, which is integrative medicine through personal health practices. I'll be interested in really listening and perhaps learning a little bit more from something that I found very exciting yesterday when Google announced that it had purchased Fitbit. As a personal health- When Google did what? I, I, purchased Fitbit. Oh yeah. In right. that sort of trend, is there something we as individual can take, apart from really the macro picture that we've been hearing yesterday and today, there's much that I personally believe, the personal perspective of health and nutrition, mm-hmm. is there a role for person in the personal health and in food system change that right now we seem to really relegate to the macro, global, right. and corporate. Of course, it all starts health, yeah. personally, right? I mean, you heard the Brooklyn Borough president had diabetes, was blind in one eye, his legs were going to be numb and his hands were, he couldn't feel his hands. And by changing his diet, he transformed his health. So it's always personal. It's always what's going on in your family. I mean, you know, who in this room has someone in their family or personally has some type of chronic disease? Raise your hand. Okay, that's most of you, and the rest of you are like 12, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so I think, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's striking. I mean, I gave a talk in Aspen, and there was a bunch of older um, people there, although I'm going to be 60, so i got to be careful what I say. <laughs> I told my wife I'm going to get a senior discount in two years. She was mortified. But, um, uh, so, <laughs> and, and I asked about Alzheimer's, and almost everybody raised their hands. So these touch everyone. 
And, and they, whether you're Republican, Democrat, whether you're vegan or you're carnivore, like it doesn't matter. We're all affected by this. And I think, I think that's kind of, to me, encouraging because it becomes very personal. And the personal yeah. is political. All your choices ultimately are political. What you eat is political. Yeah. We have one more question. Hi, I'm Wiley McCarthy, and I work with um, a food as medicine group. And I, as a physician, what, can you speak to the appalling lack of nutrition education in the medical schools in the United States? Oh. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think, I think the, the real issue is that, you know, we, we've had a lineage of medicine that's been focused on disease discovery, drug discovery, that hasn't focused so much on health. And nutrition, when I went to medical school, was just a couple of hours focused mostly on deficiency diseases like marasmus and kwashiorkor and, you know, vitamin deficiencies. Um, and, and I would say 95% of medical schools don't really have any material education around nutrition that matters. Uh, when I got to Cleveland Clinic, there was no nutrition in the curriculum. We, we, we got it in there, which is awesome. And I think, you know, what needs to happen is a change in licensing exams, because if you change the questions on the exams, that will drive the curriculum. So, you know, you can try to talk to people to, to change the curriculum. It probably won't happen. Uh, Tim Ryan and I and others helped put together something called the Enrich Act, which is to allocate money for uh, medical schools to incorporate nutrition. The government has tremendous power because they do fund a lot of uh, medical school and also residency training. And so they, they can leverage that. I think that that's what needs to happen. Also, what's happening is the whole idea of food as medicine used to be a joke. And when I was doing this 25, 30 years ago, and now everybody's talking about it, and there's you know yeah. schools of culinary medicine. So it's, it's kind of an exciting moment to kind of sit back and go, wow, the world is getting that food. Catching up. Yeah, this is really- 25 years later. 25 years ahead of the curve. Well, thank you so much for this great conversation. I know it was very informative to all of us, and thank you for being here. And- that is all. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nuremberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system.